Good morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and your truth, and, and we ask for the outpouring of your spirit to give us greater insight, discernment, and transformation to fulfill your purposes at this time in human history. Be with us as we study today that we can draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number six in the quarterly Making Friends for God. The title is Unlimited Possibilities. And first two paragraph reads, God calls us to witness for him. Witnessing is not a special spiritual gift that only a select few possess. Witnessing is God is the divine calling of each Christian. The Bible uses different expressions to describe our calling before God. We are to be the light of the world, ambassadors for Christ, a royal priesthood. This same God who calls us to witness and for service equips us for the task. He imparts spiritual gifts to each believer. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. Just as he gives salvation freely to all who believe, he gives gifts to them freely as well. I thought that was well said. Now, as you think about witnessing, to what are we to give witness? About God, of course, right? Yeah, it's a kind of rhetorical question. But does the message we give about God and from God, does it ever take on a specific focus to the situation of the people at that time it's given? Well, let me give you some examples. Did Noah witness for God? And did his witness have a specific message or focus? Did Moses witness for God when he appeared before Pharaoh and demanded the Hebrews be set free to worship Yahweh? Was he witnessing for God? Was Samuel witnessing for God when he called King Saul to account for taking booty from one of the cities they conquered? Was Jeremiah witnessing for God when he told Israel, including the leadership, to submit to Babylonian rule? Was Jesus witnessing for God when he answered their question about taxes and told them to give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's? Was Paul witnessing for God when he told the Christians how to live in relationship with the Roman authorities in Romans chapter 13? Was Ellen White witnessing for God when she wrote The Great Controversy in which she describes a long history of church-state abuses and governmental policies that violate God's principles and warns about the forming of the image of the beast? Yes or no, people? Yes. Now, were any of these witnesses for God being political? Or were they witnessing for God in the context of real-life situations in which people found themselves? trying to bring God's principles, truths, and pathway for the people to follow to bear in the circumstances of that time. Were any of these people that I just mentioned running for governmental office, advocating for specific governmental policy or law changes, or getting certain senators or governors elected to the Senate in Rome, or the governorship of Palestine? Does witnessing for God mean that we never speak about issues that intersect with the state? If we speak about issues that intersect with the state, does that mean we're being political? We could be. Certainly we could speak politically if we wanted to. We certainly could. 
But can we speak about God's methods and principles and how to apply them in our current circumstances without being political but yet addressing the intersection between church and state? Can we do that? You see, recently, the reason I'm, I'm going through this And do you notice how I went through an evidence-based review of history of God's people witnessing for him? Okay? Because I've received a few emails from people saying that they feel that over the last six months that our class has become political. I would counter that we have not become political. We're eschatological. Meaning we're addressing issues of end-time events in which church and state intersect. We continue to advocate God's kingdom of truth, love, liberty, founded upon design laws that are expression of God's character. And like the great spokespersons of God through history, at times we make local and contemporary applications of God's principle to real-life circumstances. The Bible even does that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I am not advocating for any political party or specific law or, or politician. I'm advocating for truth, for people to be freed from manipulation, for the application of principles and methods of God, and for the recovery of the image of God in people. That's what I'm advocating for. And I am sounding an end time warning to alert people to the dangers of joining forces with movements that are practicing principles contrary to God's kingdom despite the state the stated goal that they're trying to achieve you can't achieve God's goals using Satan's methods Amen. so at this time in human history to what are we to witness at this time in human, what is to be our witness? What is the message that we are to take to the world today? What are we sh- to share that meets the needs of society today? Well, you know, the, I'm going to share a quote. It's one of my favorites. I've shared it multiple times over the years. It comes from a book, Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Pause right there. Think how his character has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Do you think there's very many people in the world who haven't heard the idea of the Christian God? No, the idea of the Bible and the Christian God has essentially saturated the whole world. But what view of God has historic Christianity taken to the world? What, what law does, does this historic God that's been taken to the world utilize? What, what kind of law? He's an imperialistic dictator. He made up rules. He's got a, judici- a, a judicial magic. He's a judge. He's got record books keeping track of deeds. Uh, he's got to have some legal payment. In other words, we have created a, a, a God construct that functions lo- like a human dictator. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. God's character misunderstood and misinterpreted because we have represented his law like human law. Keep on with the quote. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in his power. His character is to be made known. 
That means the truth of his character of love and his laws as designless protocols upon which reality keep going with the quote into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory the light of his goodness mercy and truth the last rays of merciful light the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love the children of God are to manifest his glory hear that in their own life and character, they are to reveal the grace of what the grace of God has done for them. Does this give any does this have anything to do with the law of God? Is the law of God related to the glory of God? And how we reveal his glory in our lives. Can we live out the law of God without confronting and intersecting with people and practices in our society that violate the law of God? Can we live out the law without intersecting with people who are violating the law of God? Or we have those intersections, so to speak, potentially confrontations. I found this quote by the same person who wrote Christ Object Lessons. And she attributes this word, this particular statement, to an angel. An angel spoke these words to her. If you believe that or not, she attributes them to an angel. This is found in a um, manuscript release, um, uh, manuscript 15, 1888. Said my guide... This is a quote, according to her, from the angel. There is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. We'll pause right there in the middle of the quote. Much light to shine forth from the law of God. What's this referring to? 1888, did they not understand about the Sabbath being Saturday yet? Or did they know that one? They knew that one already. It's not about that. Did they understand clearly yet design law versus imposed law? They did not. How God, God built the universe to operate upon these protocols that are constants and are emanating from his character of love and the principles of love and, and freedom and beneficence. Uh, are we giving more light about God's law today than, than they were? Yes, this is part of the end-time light that is to shine. And the gospel of righteousness. So, there is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. I can tell you, we get emails from all over the world from people telling us that when the, they comprehend the idea that God's laws are design laws, they understand the principle of love and, and how God designed love to operate and the principles of freedom, that they experience a life change. It's an epiphany, yes. When did that change? When did that law, you know, construct change? Okay, I'm glad you said construct because God's law never changed. It was always design law. And Satan, in heaven, when he started his rebellion, alleged that God's law was imperial. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This was in the very beginning, 
in heaven amongst the angels. God makes up rules. He punishes you for rule breaking. His, his attack has always been on God's law as being imperial and God being an enforcer of law. Therefore, you can't trust God unless you do something to earn it or pay for it. And then as Adam and Eve were created, he gave the same thing to Adam and Eve. Did God really say, oh no, there's really nothing wrong with eating the fruit. I'm not saying God won't kill you for it. <laughs> but the fruit itself, there's, if you take this action, you'll only elevate yourself. That's the natural result of disobeying God is to, to, to elevate, not to actually be damaged. There's no harm in this. It was imperial. He was suggesting the idea that God will only use power to punish you, but inherently there's nothing wrong. It's like saying, look, you, there's nothing wrong with going 36 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. You're not going to get hurt doing that. Now, it's true the state could catch you and fine you, but if they don't, it's fine. That's what he was saying in Eden. So this idea of imperial law versus design law has always been Satan's lie about God's law. And throughout all human history, there's this tension between those two. God trying to lead them back, and you let, go look at the parables of Jesus. He is constantly using what kinds of examples to get them to understand God's kingdom. Samples from nature. Samples from nature, how reality works. Sowing and reaping, uh, the sunshine and the rain on the righteous and the wicked. There's no, there's no part. God doesn't send rain only to the righteous and sunshine only to the righteous. It's not how well, it's, it's, the law applies to everyone. Gravity applies to everyone. It's only your response to it. So I give that example. A Nigerian and a Norwegian stand in the Miami uh, sun in, in, in summer for all day with no sunscreen. Does the sun treat them differently? No, it does not. The sun treats them exactly the same. But their skin responds differently because they have different levels of melatonin in their skin. And one would be much more severely burned than the other, but the sun doesn't treat them differently at all. Their own condition causes a different reaction or response. That's God's law. It's a constant. So... The message understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit will lighten the earth with his glory. And it's, it's having that effect. The great decisive question is to be brought before all nations, tongues, and people. The great decisive question related to the law of God. There is much light yet to shine forth from the law. People are going to be called to make a decision. It goes on with the quote. Yeah, the, you know, the question, is God like Baal? Remember the Elijah message? God is like Baal, a God who makes up rules and will punish you for rule breaking unless you bring him an offering to pay for your debt. Then worship him. And be marked in your hand for going along with imperialism and thinking it's right uh, and, and acting to coerce others with, with power and punishing them for their disobedience, or be marked in your forehead for believing it's actually righteous to do so. That's Baal worship. Or reject that and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and present the truth in love and leave people free and be sealed in your forehead to be like God. This is the, the great decisive question. Continue with the quote. The closing work of the third angel's message will be attended with a power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness into all the highways and byways of life 
and decisions we made for God. Yes, many people, I can't tell you, when they see the difference between an imperial dictator who is the source of pain and inflicted punishment and death, who has to have something offered to him so he won't kill you, versus the creator God who, ha- who is the source of health, life, and goodness and only wants to heal the damage that has been uh, perpetrated upon us and therefore sent his son to fix the brokenness, And he still respects you so much, he'll leave you free not to partake. But if you do, you'll suffer and die from the condition, not from God. People find that so freeing. Freeing. Transformational. This is the message. This is the third angel's message. How is all this related to third angel's message? This is out of a book called Christ's Triumphant. Same author. The first and second messages, Revelation 14, 6 through 8, were given in 1843 and 1844. And we are now under the proclamation of the third, but all three of the messages are still to be proclaimed. It is just as essential now as ever before that they shall be repeated to those who are seeking for the truth. By pen and voice, we are to sound the proclamation, showing their order, their order and the application of the prophecies that bring us to the third angel's message. There can not be a third without the first and a second. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Pause. What, what's the eternal gospel? It's good news that's eternally true. Eternally true, not only for eternity future, always true, but in eternity past, it always was true. No matter how far back in time you go, that truth is still true. Back before humans were created, back before Lucifer fell, it's still good news. It's still true. Was there a time in universal history past that Jesus had not died for us? But this good news is still true. See, Jesus' manifestation and incarnation and death on the cross were simply the carrying out of the good news that was always true. In and of itself, it isn't the source of the good news. It's the manifestation and the, and the carrying forward of the good news. And what is the good news? God is love. And God, as creator, created a universe upon design laws or protocols in which we have real freedom to love. Because it's sustained by God of love. That's the good news. It's always been true. The lie that God's a dictator and he makes up rules is the infection in hearts and minds. Yes? Also, the law of love is the law of life. That's right. Which emanates from God who built it up in harmony with himself. Continuing with the quote. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Pause. What law lens do you hear this through? The historic imposed law lens, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come is, you better be frightened right now, and you better understand the right rules, and you better keep the right rules, because he's now investigating your record. And if he finds a demerit in there that you haven't had the blood payment put upon, then he will make a judgment against you and he will mete out that punishment against you in the fires to come. But hey, he loves you. And he'll torture you forever and ever. He'll torture you as long as you deserve or forever and ever. Yeah. Burn you. Burn you, yeah. This is, this is the corruption when we, when we try to understand the Bible through imposed law. 
It always puts God in the role of being the inflictor of pain, suffering, and death under the Rubicon or guise of so-called justice. But that's human justice. Human justice is always inflicting pain. When you understand design law, design law justice is always healing damage. What's the just and right thing for a doctor to do for a patient who is dying of a disease that they inflicted upon themselves? Maybe they have lung cancer from smoking, and they come to the doctor. What's the just thing for the doctor to do? Take a bullet out, a gun out and shoot them. No, it's unjust. Any infliction of harm is unjust. Any infliction of harm. It's unjust, right? The only just action a doctor can take is to heal the condition. Under design law, God's justice is always healing. However, how about the doctor has a healing remedy? We'll put the cancer into remission, but the patient refuses it, won't comply, won't go along, won't show up for the treatments. What's the outcome? The wages of sin is death. Is the outcome for the non-compliant patient who won't participate in the treatment to heal them, is the outcome that the doctor will one day have a trial, will present evidence that this person disobeyed and would not follow and comply, and therefore he's asking the jury to convict them of guilt and determine how long that we torture them before we kill them. That is not what happens in design law. But does the person still suffer and die? From what? Their own condition. From their condition. The sin condition torments and damages. God is the source of healing and restoration for all who trust him. So when we see or fear God and give glory to him, it means be in awe. Be overwhelmed that what an incredible creator God we serve and give him glory, that first that statement a moment ago, by revealing his methods in the way you carry out your life. You live in harmony with them. That glorifies his methods. Present truth and love, leaving people free. For the hour in human history has come... For the hour of his judgment. The hour in human history has come for people to finally judge God as creator and stop judging him to be a dictator. To reject imperialism. To reject imposed law. To inject, reject penal substitution, fraudulent lie that's infected Protestant Christianity. To reject it and to embrace the truth that God is the creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality is built, and he's working to write his law, not in your record book, but in your heart and mind. Because it's a living law on how life is built to operate. That's what he's trying to do. Continue on with the quote. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Notice, as soon as you make the judgment, the call is, fear God, be in awe of him, give him glory by revealing your life. And... Because the hour of his judgment, the hour has come for you to make the right judgment. And when you make the right judgment, here's what happens. You worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. You begin to worship and adore the creator and stop trying to have an intercessor plead to the dictator to not kill you. That's what happens. That's the outcome. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Creator worship is what we're called back to. Continue on with the quote. This message, if heeded, will call attention of every nation and kindred and tongue and people to close examination of the word and to the true light in regard to the power that has changed the Seventh-day Sabbath to the spurious Sabbath. 
The Sabbath memorial declaring who is the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, has been torn down and a spurious Sabbath has been given to the world in its place. Thus a breach has been made in the law. Pause. We're to call people's attention to what? To the Sabbath Sunday issue? It says, this will call the attention of every, say when you, when you present the three angels' message, it will call the attention of every nation, kindred, tongue, people, to close examination of the word and to the true light in regard to the power that changed the day of worship. Not the change in the day of worship, folks. That's not where to call people's attention to, other than to elucidate it as evidence of the power. It's simply an evidence of method, of power. And this is what we are to call people's attention to, two types of power-wielding. Creatorship, who builds reality and whose laws are design laws, the Sabbath was made for man. It was created as a day of rest. It stands as a memorial of design law. The Sunday became a day of rest by legislation. Thus, it points out the power. And the problem is not going to church on Sunday. That is not a problem. The problem is believing that power method is God's method. Is applying that power method. Imperialism, passing laws, and then forcing compliance. That's the problem. The same author in other places, when she talks about the image of the beast, she doesn't talk about attending a worship service on Sunday. She talks about coercing people with punishments if they don't. That's the problem. That's imperialism. That's the power. That's a corruption. And if you apply that same power to any other moral or spiritual issue, it's beastly. God's way, present truth and love, lead people free. Because what he wants is your love, your trust, your loyalty, your devotion, your agreement. And you can never get those things by threatening to kill people who don't love and trust you. Never. Never. Even if you call it justice, even if you call it righteousness, you will still get rebellion and distrust. So God cannot use these methods. This is why Satan has infected the church with this lie because he wants the church to go forward and present God in his most heinous light to turn people away from God. Even those who believe in so-called God, they don't believe in the truth about God. They believe it's righteous to kill people. Thus, the breach is not the change of the day. The change of the day is the evidence of the breach. The real breach in the law is when people believe in their mind that God's law works like human law. You understand you have to accept that lie first before you begin changing any of God's laws. I've said before, what church committee gets together and vote that, in fact, in our society today, wouldn't it be nice to vote that everybody that's a member of our church is not required to breathe when they go out in society, and then you won't get COVID, because you don't breathe. You see? You'll be safe from COVID because none of our members are required. We voted that in, in committee last night. It's a law now. It's a law now because we've passed it in our committee that all our members are not required to breathe, and now you're safe from COVID. 
Do you see how silly that is? That is silly. Why, why don't church committees do that to protect their membership? They don't do it because they know they can't change the law of respiration. They can't change design laws. So what would it mean about the way they conceive of law if a church does vote to change God's law? It means they don't conceive of it as design law. They just see it as rules. And that's the power when they change Sabbath to Sunday. They see it just as rules. And all Christians who operate with a God that's imperial, who gives rules and must punish, is still accept the lie and still accept that type of power. And, they, and thus hearts and minds are corrupted by it. Yes? The reason why I know what you're saying is truth is because of the relationship I was in that had rules and regulations. And if I didn't keep up with those rules that I was threatened with divorce. And that's why... And did love grow more? No. <laughs> no, it didn't. No. Whenever you violate liberty, love is damaged. But it's a, freedom. A desire to rebel is instilled. And if you don't get your freedom back, you become a shadow person. That's why I know what you're saying is truth. Yep, it's uh, completely testable. Sunday's lesson. It's about differing gifts. It's titled Differing Gifts United in Service. Different gifts. What does that mean, different gifts? From where do our gifts come? From God, of course, yes. If we have differing gifts, does that mean we have differing value or worth? No. No, we all have equal value as children of God. No question about it. If we have differing gifts, even though we have the same value, does that mean we all have the same abilities? If we have different abilities, despite having equal worth, what would that mean in where we find ourselves working in God's cause? Would that mean we all do the same activity? Or we do different activities because we have different gifts, even though we all have the same worth. What about in society as a whole? Do these principles hold true Outside the church, or the only true in the church. In heaven, are, are we all of equal worth as children of God? Yes, but do we all have different abilities? Yes, different different gifts and talents. Yes. Does that mean that some individuals are better suited than others for various jobs or positions? Yes. yes. Do we also have different individualities with? That we and we develop different characters by our choices. Is that true? Yes. Do we apply ourselves uniquely, and thus we could have two people that start life with similar gifts, but because of their personal choices and applications, they end up in different places? Yes. Yes. A person, maybe two gifted people, say musical talent, and one gets lessons and practices for years, and another one never does that. They go into you know, carpentry or something. They won't both be musically skilled the same as adults, will they? There, you see, what, what kind of law is involved there? What is the role of God in the development of a person's gifts, abilities, or talents? What's God's role? <laughs> Encourager, how about gifting to start with? And then encourager, is this word inspirer? (laughs) He sends opportunities. Opportunities, okay. Creates a design framework for 
phase to develop. Divine, okay, sustaining his laws that, that are constants, good. What's a person's role? Do they have a role in the development of their abilities and gifts? Okay, you ready now? Uh, to the quagmire. What is society's or government's role in the development of an individual's gifts? Oh, she said a good one. Freedom. Freedom's uh, something society can develop and give to people. Freedom to decide rather than assigning, well, your dad was a Thatcher, uh, you were a serf on my estate, and you're going to be a Thatcher because your dad was a Thatcher. Okay? Historically, that's how things went. We give freedom to say, well, your dad was a Thatcher, but what would you like to do? Freedom opens door for development, doesn't it? But are there laws involved? What kind of laws? Are there design laws involved in all of this? Law of exertion, law of worship, by beholding we become changed, law of love, giving, law of liberty, the freedom we just talked about. These laws are definitely involved. The person developing to their maximum, no question. If you take liberty away, coerce in a relationship or even societally with slavery, you stifle development, don't you? So all these laws are involved. Can governments legislate or pass laws designed to actually help people develop their abilities? Yes. Yes. How about the laws that kids have to go to school? <laughs> Seriously. Yes. And that they can't drive. <laughs> yeah, and they can't drive until a certain age. Your five-year-old driving your vehicle. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 but, but laws that they have to go to school is designed to help develop abilities, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And how about laws that when they attend school will provide meals and good nutrition for them? Is there nutritional laws involved that if we as a society give kids from from homes that aren't feeding them, whether it's because of neglect or, or poverty, it doesn't really matter. The kid still benefits from getting a good meal. So let's say society provides freedom, passes laws, creates schools, pays teachers, provides meals. All this is going on to create and engender opportunity for people to develop their skills and gifts. Well, does that mean... All children will get an equal outcome. No. Well, why not? Are all teachers equal in their ability to teach? No. Oh, have you ever had some you really couldn't learn from? Yes. I have. Yeah. Are all schools equal? No. Are all children equal? No. Are all homes and parents equal? No. Do all have equally healthy and mature friends? No. Do all have equal abilities to start with? No. Do all have equal physical and psychological and emotional health? No. Do all have equal sleep, nutrition, safety, and support? No. Do all apply themselves equally to the task of learning? No. You guys realize that this is heresy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. What he's, what he's saying is, is heretical in today's society. It's absolutely heretical. Do all of the people still have equal worth and value? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Does equality in value and worth mean equality in outcomes? No. no. What is the Christian responsibility? To love your neighbor as yourself, to help them when you can. What principle must be of principles must be applied in order for people to develop their abilities to the maximum? Maximum development, folks. 
requires that people are stressed, challenged, pressured, and struggle against some difficulty. In other words, strength comes from exertion. So in order for people to grow and have, uh, they have to be presented with problems or obstacles that are beyond their current level of mastery, but within their reach to master. Wow. If we never present people with difficulties beyond their current level, they never exert themselves. So this is why a good trainer may start out with five pound weights. And as soon as those are easy for you, they give you 10-pound weights. And as soon as those are easy for you, they give you 15-pound weights. You say, why are you always weighing me down? <laughs> I can never get ahead with you. And this kind of distortion, when you challenge people, you see, it is not a gift to go in when a child has had a, a weight. We've just put moved him from 10 to 15 pounds. And now some people start at 15 pounds. They're just biologically stronger to start with, right? And this kid struggles for months, but he finally gets to, to 10, and we put 15, he goes home and cries, it's not fair, it's not fair! And we have a real corruption in society today. Kind of going hand in hand with that, uh, the child must be allowed to fail, or whomever. Well, I'm getting there. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, that's right. No, he's exactly right. No, no, we're exactly right. Most of the time, if we're really in, engaging people for their development maximally, they will start out performing poorly most of the time. You start out any music lessons, most people. Now, there are a few virtuosos out there that can just sit down and play beautifully. But most of us start out poorly. Am I right or wrong? Right. You start out becoming a carpenter, a woodworker, whatever. Most of us start poorly. Okay? And the challenges and the applications over time develop neural networks that become more complex in your skill level, your imagination, your ability to envision what you want to create. It all gets better. I will tell you, my writing has gotten better over the years of doing it. It was really... What? My cartoons have gotten better. Have gotten better so. Seriously, I mean, the, the artistry has improved. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Trust me, it has. <laughs> it means that people will initially perform poorly. It also means that they will often fail to get the correct answer or the problem right. Remember when you learned algebra, did you get every problem right right from the get-go? Yes, Wendell. This implies that the person is healthy. It, it applies to even unhealthy people. Same principles involved. Same principles, but as far as the success, and sometimes you can do damage because you're not healthy. The same principles involved, regardless of where a person's health starts at. Uh, you're not going to get a person well who's sick if we don't challenge their recovery. If we don't have them do incentive spirometry and de breathe deeply, they get atelectasis and pneumonia, uh, and they're very sick. We still have to challenge them if they're going to get well. But if the person is unhealthy, they may need to be taken out of that environment and put in a different environment. 
That's a completely different question than the principles that we're talking about. Where do we place the person so they can develop maximally? What level do we start them at? Will we start them at the 5 pounds? Do we start them at the 15 pounds? Yes, we start people at different places depending on their level of health and strength and so forth. But the principles apply no matter where they start. If we want them to grow from there, they've got to be stressed. They've got to be challenged. Yes or no? If you take the challenge away because they're sick, somebody has a broken leg, they're in pain, they've had the pin put in, they've had six weeks of, uh, you know, of immobilization, they're now sent to physical therapy, Russell gives them exercises to do, but it hurts. Initially, putting weight on and pressure hurts. They cry. Somebody steps in, well, they're sick, they're wounded, they're damaged. I'll do it for them. So Flight aside, I'll take the machine over and do your exercises. Do, do they get stronger? Do we help them doing that? How about a child who may have um, something they didn't choose, uh, whether it's a reading disorder, dyslexia, something else? Now, we need to be sensitive to that, so we give them proper interventions that help them maximize, but don't they still have to be challenged? The illustration is given in the in Sunday's lesson of, of eyelashes. We're getting there. But go ahead. In Afghanistan, I've never been there, but in Afghanistan, eyelashes are removed, otherwise it leads to blindness because they become diseased from uh, parasites in the environment. And so the young mothers will take and remove eyelashes so it doesn't damage the eyesight. Which is better, remove them or, or get rid of the parasite? <laughs> because it's, it's endemic and you can't get rid of the parasite, it's better to remove the, the eyelashes. But which is better, to get rid of the parasite or to remove the eyelashes? Get rid of the parasite. That would be better if you could. So this is an adaptation giving a pathological environment. So this is removing something which to us is beneficial, but someone else is not beneficial. And so the, the rules are always there. The rules of health and whatnot and what you're describing is always there. But sometimes the environment is much different. So will a good teacher or coach push a student or an athlete beyond what that student or athlete believes they themselves can do? Yes, they will. Have you ever seen coaches? I can tell you in the military, in basic training, the drill instructors push people beyond what they think they can do or want to do. It really, and, and guess what happens? Most of the time in the aftermath, those who apply themselves maximally look back on their coaches and teachers and thank them. But they would have never gotten there without being pushed, without going through some pain, without even getting their feelings hurt. Sometimes good coaches will say things that sound insulting. I can tell you, drill instructors do. <laughs> Truly. In today's society, that's not right. That's abusive. It's not intended to be abusive. It's intended to motivate a person to go beyond their own inherent belief in themselves or willingness and push themselves to develop capacities that are within their reach, but they don't believe that they can reach. This current society we live in is enfeebling. It's crippling of people. It's corrupt. Yes. It gives pride to the person or they feel like they've accomplished something when they've reached a new goal. How about we pass children along to the next grade level when they haven't mastered their current grade level because we don't want them stigmatized or hurt their feelings? Does that ever happen? Yes. And it's corrupt and it's wrong. You're not it, helping the child. It damages. 
that if they couldn't pass this level, the next level will be even be more beyond them and will only cause them to feel and internalize ideas. I'm stupid. I'm incapable. I can't muster. I can't. And they will look for other ways to make themselves feel valuable or good. And so they become the best at being bad. Truly, this is what drives people into gangs and drugs and all types of deviant behavior because they're pushed in places academically where they can't succeed. Not everybody is gifted with academic skill. And if we would actually recognize gifting, give a basic education to the first maybe four to six years, maybe six years of education, and then track people based on their gifting into academics or into apprenticeships, there are people who don't read and write well that are gifted carpenters or plumbers or electricians or mechanics. mechanics. They don't read and write well. They don't do math well. But they can do other things very, very well. But if we force them down tracks they're not gifted for then, and, 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 then, and then set up a standard that makes value based on performance, you got an A. Well done. You got, you got your D again, buddy. And they come back. The message is, you're not as good as these others. You don't measure up. And people become discouraged. Their ego takes a hit. They look for places where they can excel through the joint gangs. This is a corruption. First paragraph of our lesson talks about, despite differing gifts, that we can have unity. Have you heard anything that I've described today that actually, if applied, results in unity? It's the, it's the outcome. If you apply what we've talked about in here, anything, that the outcome is unity. Design law, folks. Design law is always unifying. You stop disagreement when people come to harmony on design law. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Jew, Protestant, or agnostic. If you step off the Empire State Building, gravity treats you all the same. There's not argument about that. It's unifying. Right now, there's no longer argument about whether cigarette smoke is damaging and unhealthy. There was a time, because we didn't have the science and the evidence, but it's very clear. It's a violation of the laws of health. It doesn't matter your religious background, your faith in God. It's harmful. Understanding design law is unifying. Have we been elucidating ideas in here and principles that are universal truths and are true for all people of all cultures throughout all human history? Have we been doing that? Yes. Have these very principles of individuality, hard work, reaping and sowing, come under attack in society recently? Consider the impact on history, on history now, when position, we're talking about selecting people based on abilities and development of their talents versus identity. What happens in history when position is awarded based on identity rather than ability? Divine right of kings. Rulers become rulers because of inheritance of their family, not based on character, talents, intelligence, wisdom, it's integrity. It's not based on any of that. It's based on identity. What happened in human history when this occurred? Do we ever find a society that ultimately turns out, well, they all get corrupt. They all get abuses. Every one of them. Do you notice in the Bible that God overthrew this human tradition in multiple places? Multiple places he overthrew it. Abel and Seth were chosen, not firstborn Cain. Isaac inherited the blessing, not Ishmael. Jacob inherited, not Esau. Joseph inherited a double portion, the firstborn birthright, not Reuben. 
That's why you have um, Ephraim and Manasseh included with the 12 tribes because Joseph got two portions, which is the firstborns. Judah became ruler of the family, not Reuben, Simeon, or Levi, his older brothers. Ephraim inherited the blessing, not Manasseh, Joseph's firstborn. Solomon inherited the kingship from David, not the older siblings. Do you see that God repeatedly overthrew identity politics and chose people based on character and abilities over and over again? Who was best suited? Who was best suited? Who was best suited? What about in society today? What happens if we place people in positions based on some identity issue rather than their ability? Pastors become pastors based on gender, not gifting of the Spirit. We require school admissions or business hiring based on gender or race rather than qualification. Understand the corruption now. Think through it. What impact does it have upon people if we reward based upon some identity rather than their ability? Would it undermine the individual's application of themselves, the development of their own capacities and abilities? Would they continue to strive and develop and hard work as much if they knew they were just going to get it because of uh, their, their dad owns the company? They're, because they're, uh, they've got the right, uh, I don't know, they check the right box of uh, having a certain amount of uh, you know, Native American genetics or something. <laughs> Or their color. Or their color. Character is not important. Ability is not important. Application is not important. It's just who you are. That's what matters. The same problem can be applied to religion. When people believe that belonging to the right denomination. That's my identity. I'm a Jew and the Jews have the law of Moses and they are God's chosen people. Therefore, you Samaritans, you're bad, I'm good. 2,000 years ago. That's the, that's the deal. I'm, 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 I've got the right identity. Or how about I'm an Adventist, and I've got the Sabbath, and therefore I belong to the right denomination. The rest of you people, you're in Babylon. I, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the remnant. That's my identity. It's not based on character. It's not based on development in your relation with God. It's just based on your identity. Do you see the corruption in this? And our society is rife with this, 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 this corrupt message. Is it ungodly to discriminate? I'm pausing mid-sentence so you are wise to wait. (laughs) Is it ungodly to discriminate, meaning to differentiate in our decision-making, in those we hire, in what positions we place people, in whom we marry, in whom we let babysit our children? Is it wrong to discriminate in who we associate with based upon character, abilities, and gifts? Or is it right to discriminate based on those things? You must. It's godly to do that. Yes. We are supposed to make those type of discriminating decisions. Exercising good judgment. One of the falsehoods that's come into society commonplace today is that being of equal worth and value, which we all are, nobody is worth any more than anybody else, means we all have equal abilities. 
It's a lie. We do not. This falsehood leads to the idea that it's wrong to discriminate based on ability, character, gifting, and talents. No, it's not. It is actually good for all involved to make those discriminations because when people are told no and given an objective reason because you aren't qualified because of this reason that gives them opportunity to go out and qualify themselves, address the deficiencies in themselves when they're objective. Is it ever a problem for people to be rejected? Do we have a problem in society today where people don't know how to handle rejection? When they're rejected, it's the other person's fault. When they're rejected, you've heard me. Now, let's be honest. How many like being rejected for any reason? Nobody likes it. Do you remember maybe growing up then not being picked to be on the team on the playground? When they're doing pickup ball game and you don't get picked? How'd that feel? Or dating. I can't tell you how many times I was told no. There is one person that I know intimately (laughs) who told me no six times over eight months before she finally went out with me. (laughs) Just one woman. (laughs) But it doesn't feel good to be rejected. How about rejected by an employer? Apply for a job. Don't get hired. Rejected by a church group. How do we respond? How do you respond when rejected? How did Jesus respond when rejected? I want to give you some some ideas of how to respond, healthy ways to respond when rejected. First and foremost, be truthful. Evaluate to the best of your ability why you were rejected. Was it because you were actually ill-suited for the position? Or were you rejected because the other person was ignorant of your abilities? You were well-suited, but they didn't know it. Or the other person had a bias against you for some reason. Or the other person did not have a bias against you, They had a bias toward, positive bias, toward someone else. Nepotism, for instance, hiring someone in their family that's unqualified and you don't get it and you're qualified. This is a simple example of a bias toward somebody, but it's not actually against you. Or you didn't get it because, I know this is what your first default position is when you've been rejected historically. I know this to be true. God was protecting you from some future bad outcome. I didn't get this because God knew it would be bad for me, and he prevented me. He, 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 put a, he put a hedge of protection around me just there. Thank you, God, that I didn't get that hiring. It was a bad place for me. How many of you go there as a default? Is that why you went back seven times? <laughs> well, it's like the walls of Jericho. You have to go seven times before they fall. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then they came tumbling down. <laughs> okay, then, then after you're truthful, identify whatever, whatever, then you must apply the truth. Not just understand it, not just ignore Apply the truth. If you realize that you weren't picked because you're ill-suited, that you were applying for a basketball team and you're five foot eight, you need to own that. 
and just recognize, you know what, I'm never going to be a professional basketball player. Not going to happen. And that's okay. I'm not well-suited for that. There's many things we're not well-suited for as individuals. Some people, though, have dreams and aspirations for whatever reason, that they are not well-suited to do. And if they don't own that, they won't find what they are suited to do. And they will spend their life dissatisfied, disgruntled, angry, and bitter that life has treated them unfairly, and they didn't get their shot because they weren't chosen. So if, in fact, you're not well-suited, if it's something like your height on a basketball team, you're not going to change that. You need to move on. But if it's something you're not suited for because it's a matter of education or you don't have the proper licensing and you want to still pursue that, then get the education, get the license. I'm licensed in the state of Tennessee to practice medicine. I'm not licensed in the state of Texas to practice medicine. I can't go to Texas and start practicing until I get a license there. So I could apply for a job in Texas, and they're not going to hire me unless I get a license. I'll be rejected. It's a qualification requirement. So if I want that, then I've got to, got to get myself up to speed. If you have character shortcomings, this is a harder one. Looking in the mirror to identify your own shortcomings, maybe, uh, this is a simple one for us to kind of acknowledge, but it goes beyond this to the more subtle, but somebody with an addiction that has not been addressed and they're still actively using and they keep getting rejected in relationships, they might want to get in recovery. But they can take the, 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 the road of you're just judgmental, uh, it, drugs and illegal drugs. It's an arbitrary construct of governments. The government's the man trying to abuse everybody. It's nothing to do with me. You're just judgmental like the rest of them. They could go that route. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I see it. But if you realize that you are well-suited but still were not chosen, then apply the truth that your rejection in those circumstances was not about you. Don't take an ego hit. What about you? There's variables that maybe are outside your knowledge. Yes? There's tons of reasons why Jesus was rejected, and it wasn't any of those that you listed. Yes, because they didn't appreciate his systems and values and want to follow him. They were jealous of him. They felt threatened by him. They had a preconceived notion of what God was supposed to look like. Yes. Yes. And so their preconceptions, well, yeah. And the last two paragraphs talks about the eyelashes and the small parts of the body, um, and it applies it to the church that we all have different abilities and different strengths, and thus we need to be integrated and apply ourselves. And, and if we surrender to God and apply ourselves and follow his plan, we will find usefulness in his cause. We will. True unity is not based on taking an oath to a creed. True unity is based on having a heart that loves God and other people. And as I will tell you, as we've shared this message and people have come to embrace this God of love and his design laws where we've traveled all over the world, we have unity with people. There's just a camaraderie, a fellowship there, even if we still see certain details differently. And I want to, I want to talk about that. We can have unity and never see certain points the same. And there's, and, and this in fact becomes inevitable because here's why. We're finite beings coming from different backgrounds and having different experiences with different educations and are different places in our personal journey and maturity. Thus, it is predictable and inevitable that we will have differences in understanding of certain Bible verses or doctrinal interpretations because we're standing in different places in our journey. 
We are not to be unified by adhering to the same list of fundamental beliefs. That is not what brings us unity. We're to be unified in love for the same God, surrendering to the same Savior, and having the same principles of truth, love, freedom written on our hearts. You see, I have unity with my grandchildren. We are united in love, affection, devotion, trust, loyalty. But we are certainly not united in in the way we see everything. We're not. We have differences in our understanding of reality. But those differences do not divide us. Why not? Why are we not divided? Because we see things in different light. Because of love, because of trust. We both have hearts to understand the other. See, I love to hear my grandchildren's understanding of things. It's great. And they love to learn from us. We're united, but we don't see everything the same. Why is it not that way in the church? That some of us are more mature, some of us are the infants and just learning? I'm going to jump to something else. Boy, um, yeah, let's uh, jump to Monday's lesson or go to Monday's lesson. I think it was Monday or is it Tuesday? Yeah, yeah, we want to touch on this on Monday. And it's about um, being content with what God has called us for. And fulfilling his purpose rather than having a sense of discontent and striving for something he has not called us for. The example of Eve being dissatisfied and being tempted by the temptation. You can become like God, not satisfied with her position. She wanted to be more. Okay. And here's a quote out of Review and Herald, August 4, 1910. God did not create evil. He only made the good which was like himself, but Satan would not be content to know the will of God and do it. His curiosity was on the stretch to know that which God had not designed he should know. Evil, sin, and death were not created by God. They are the result of disobedience which originated in Satan. Notice, the result of, not the inflicted punishment for. The result of. But the knowledge of evil now in the world was brought in through the cunning of Satan. These are, the, these are very hard and expensive lessons, but men will learn them, and many will never be convinced that it is bliss to be ignorant of certain kind of knowledge, which arises from unsatisfied desires and unholy aims. The sons and daughters of Adam are full of it. Are, full, are fully as inquisitive and presumptuous as Eve in seeking forbidden knowledge. They gain an experience of knowledge which God never designed them that they should have, and the result will be, as it was for our first parents, loss of their Eden home. So, can you think of the type of knowledge that God never designed us to have? And this is knowledge of experience, to experience. He doesn't want us to know or to have, he doesn't want us to have the knowledge of what taking cocaine and other drugs, illegal drugs, feel like. He doesn't want us to have that knowledge. He doesn't want us to have the knowledge of adultery. He doesn't want us to have the knowledge of worshiping false gods. He doesn't want us to have the knowledge of sorcery or witchcraft or communing with demons. He doesn't want us to have the knowledge of cruelty to people or to animals. The knowledge of murder, the knowledge of bearing false witness, the knowledge of envy, the knowledge of laziness, gluttony, pornography. He doesn't want us to have the knowledge of war, the knowledge of human politics. Remember he told them not to have kings. He didn't want them to have that knowledge. The knowledge of sin and all of its deviations from God's design. He doesn't want us to have that knowledge. If he doesn't want us to have this knowledge, then why did he give them the tree of knowledge of good and evil? 
It was the tree that would impart knowledge. That's what it was for, to impart knowledge. But what kind of knowledge? Was it a tree that they would go up to and pick up books and read about evil and good, good and evil? Was it a tree where they'd get a TED Talk about good and evil? Was it a tree where they'd have sermons from the Bible to study about good and evil? Was that the kind of tree it was? No. What kind of knowledge? When Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, what kind of knowledge is he talking about? The knowledge of experience. So what kind of knowledge were they to obtain at the tree? The knowledge of experience. They were to consider, to reason, to think, to reflect, to examine, and then to decide and choose to internalize into their hearts and minds either good, trust in God, choose the truth, embrace his methods, and thus know good. They will know good. Or internalize the evil, distrust God, believe internalize the lies, embrace the methods of Satan, and thus know evil. It was the, God, the tree where they were to gain knowledge by their choice and experience. And they were free to choose either one. And they could have chosen to know only good and solidified in good. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that despite Adam and Eve's choice to know evil, that you have sent Jesus Christ to bring us the good. We ask for your spirit now to take the victories of Christ, enlighten our minds, give us the wisdom and discernment, and as we choose the truth, transform us, writing your methods, principles, and character into our hearts and minds, and cleansing us, and then and let us glorify you at this time in human history so that people can make the right choice for you, and this message will lighten the world, and people will see the clear distinctions between our creator God, who built the universe to operate in, in love, versus these imperial dictator lies that have pervaded history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.